Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That'd be me, and I am just so glad about today's show. David Wheaton, my friend, will be on the program. It's his five-year anniversary of a book he has written on the life of his beautiful a dog named Ben. It's called My Boy Ben, and it's quite a moving story. And then Dr. Craig Keener, uh, an amazing scholar, will be coming on the program as well. That's all ahead on the show today. So if you are having one of those days where you've got a little extra time to be at home prepping for the big holiday and the radio is on, you're just in for this huge treat. Take 60 seconds to be right back. There are many ways and many reasons to support Faith Radio. The daily hope and encouragement you receive and the opportunity to learn and apply God's Word. But when and how you give is also a consideration. Your year-end charitable giving can impact your taxes. So if you're interested in setting up a donor-advised fund or giving stock or appreciated assets, go to MyFaithRadio.com and click on the Donate tab to find the estate planning page with answers to your questions. And thanks for making Faith Radio part of your year-end giving. Worshiping Together. Welcome back to the show. When you have a a, a dog, that's a once-in-a-lifetime dog, and, and how many times has David Wheaton said to, said to his dog, Ben, that's my boy. He probably said it more than he could count, more than the stars in the sky, and he was David's boy, and he was a beautiful uh, yellow lab. And David has written a book about uh, my boy, Ben, called A Story of Love, Loss, and Grace, and it is beautifully written. Uh, heart-wrenching and warm and if you've ever loved and lost a pet this is a book that would not only be an incredible gift but uh, a healing uh, book for anyone to read who has been through that and have has suffered let's be honest it's it's hard to lose a pet and once you do you know what it's like and you can you can appreciate this book more than ever David's uh, joining me on the program today to talk about my boy Ben now in its fifth year David welcome well, thank you, Bill, and thank you for your your kind words about the book. And it just, as you're saying that, just kind of brought me back to the days when I had my boy Ben, and it was um, it was on the professional tennis tour in my late 20s and in, into my 30s. And you know, we had had dogs growing up in the family, um, but we never had a dog like Ben. And he was a yellow lab, and we were, and I write about this in the book. We were more utilitarian dog owners. Like, there's an intentional separation of man and dog, and the dog is a dog. Mm -hmm. But when we got Ben, we had constructed this dog run outside. And well, Ben never spent a night in the dog run. He lived in the house all the time because he just got so much a part of our family. And so 
really, you know, the book is a dog book, of course. That's that's the thread that runs through it. But really, the book is about relationships in life, that God created us to be in relationship, of course, primarily with him. But he also created people. And I think he also created our our pets to have some semblance of, of relationship there as well. Not the same or not as important as with people, but there's a relationship there. And uh, the journey with Ben really taught me so many things and got impressed and shaped my life um, just through the journey with this yellow lab named Ben. Yeah. And, you know, it's said that people take care of their pets, but in reality, you kind of take care of each other because how many times did you go outside to walk, Ben, and it might have been a walk you wouldn't have otherwise had taken? I mean, there's there's so much we we gain from having a pet in our life. There is. I mean, I thought about that when I had Ben is, why do I love this dog so much? Why, why is this dog so important in my life? And there, there are just many reasons for it from a relationship, a relationship standpoint and companionship and that kind of thing. But, you know, coming home and getting me outside to go for a walk and just all the details, any dog owner who's listening will, will understand this. And there's actually a chapter in the book on this. Why do I, why do we love our dogs so much? And it really, there's lots of different entities, that, but I think it ultimately comes down to just the, again, we're created for relationship and, and our pets can, can provide a, a kind of a, a level or a degree of relationship that God, I think, intends us to have. And even more with our fellow people and families and friends. And of course, ultimately with him. Yeah. Now, David, if you had a rough, uh, tour or you came back from a trip and, you know, you were agitated and you sat down on the couch and Ben would put his, his little head on your lap, it would uh, calm you down, wouldn't it? Well, it's a simple and it's a sweet thing in life. And I remember many times at that particular time in my life, I was single. I was traveling all over the world, you know, nine months a year on the pro tennis tour. And I've had a very unusual life away from home a lot. And even when I was home, I would go down and I would go through training you know, almost every single day and I'd come back and I distinctly remember sort of the change that would come over me when I would come home and I was about to see Ben or come home from a trip and about to see Ben. It was just, it was a, just a positive feeling would come over me. He brought a, a simple joy and happiness to my life that I wouldn't have had had he not been there. And it goes without saying that there is a certain level of companionship that is unmatched. I mean, people are wonderful and, you know, you and I love people more than anything except God. And we love family. We love friends. We love everyone in our lives. But that certain level of companionship that a, that a dog will bring into your life is I am 100% happy to see you 100% of the time. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. You know, you're obviously people are the most important relationships we have on a horizontal level, but uh, my mom likes to kind of jokingly say she loves that bump, bumper sticker. Um, maybe it's not surprising that man's best friend cannot talk. <laughs> you know, do, do, dogs don't offend us, you know, like like we offend others and others offend us. You know, dogs don't have that same sin nature we do. Uh, so they're really all about us and they're about pleasing us and, and providing that relationship and companionship and joy and you know, sitting on your couch with your dog up next to you in front of the fire or watching TV or something. There, there's, such a, there's such a tangible and intangible benefit and just um, something so sweet there about uh, having a dog uh, part of the family. And that, Ben, was certainly like that for us. I mean, it wasn't just in my own life. It was 
he was just a, a, a favorite of the rest of our family as well. He just went with me everywhere, whether it was in the car, he was always riding shotgun in the car. And I had him with me all the time. And especially at that particular time in my life when I was single, so I wasn't married, didn't have kids. Uh, I think the bond was even made tighter uh, because of that. And so we had, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is a story of love, loss, and grace. And that really is, it seems like a basic, simple subtitle, but that's really what the story's about. I mean, there was this, there was a love story there, um, you know, not only with Ben, but, you know, my, my parents figure prominently into this book and how, how the, the journey with Ben actually sort of, in, in a way, led uh, to me eventually getting married to Brody, who I had known since our childhood days. So there's lots of twists and twir- turns and storylines and different relationships with Ben and with others in this book. But the big story is, uh, over it all, is that God uses these relationships in life with the family and who I would eventually marry, but even with Ben, a dog, uh, to to shape us and sanctify us. Because when I lost Ben, and that occurs right in the middle of the book, um, for a couple of chapters there, it's difficult. But I don't want people to miss the the whole final third of the book, which is the the good news, the purpose um, for that God has for the difficult moments we go through in life, and it's about God's grace and the gospel and the perspective and comfort and hope He gives. And so that is really the the big story. is It's more than a dog story. It's really about some of the big issues of life, about love and loss and grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, you had been for eight and a half years. Is that right? That's right. But the fact that you were able to take him everywhere and that you had that certain flexibility in your life, you probably got more time with him than, say, a typical dog owner that had a dog that lived to 14. Yeah, possibly. You know, I was gone a lot, so I was traveling a lot during his early years uh, when I had him. So I wasn't around him you know, as much as someone who was home all the time, but certainly I uh, I got him in my late 20s and I played in the professional tour and into my early 30s. So um, from, let's say, about halfway through his life, when he was maybe three to four years old, I started to be home more often. And so then I did was able to spend more time with him as I was transitioning from tennis into Christian radio and the other things that I was doing. So I did spend a lot of time with him. And there's no doubt that the deeper the love, the deeper the pain and loss. You know, we, we, we don't, no one really cries or gets too grief stricken over someone who passes away or a dog that passes away two states over because we don't know that person. We don't Mm -hmm. love that person. And we can try, but we just don't have the capacity. But when we have those who are around us, uh, whether it's someone in our family or in this case in the book, it was Ben, when we lose that relationship for which we were created, again, we're created for relationship. When we lose that, something of great value to us it's really a reminder, a very strong, vivid reminder that we live in a fallen world. Um, and I think that's that's why God um, allows us to go through that kind of grief, to, to realize that this wasn't the intention from the very beginning. We weren't intended to love and lose um, if it hadn't been for sin at work in the world, mm-hmm. just the principle, the corrupting influence of sin in the world that we, we do lose now uh, in, in this world. Um, there is death, there is loss, even if it's not death, it's other kinds of loss. You know, you could be going through a divorce. That's a horrible loss. Um, different kinds of losses of a job or, or something valuable to you. Um, and some, sometimes these things are so painful, but the good news is that God works through those things. It's like Romans eight 
28 and 29, God causes all things, even the hard things, I'm adding that part in, but even the hard things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And that was definitely the story with Ben, as hard as it was to lose him in the middle of the book at only eight and a half years old, and it was just out of the blue, he got cancer and he died. So I'm giving away that part of the book, but there's so much, so many things that happen after that, so many surprises and things that I write about in the book um, that God had a plan for that. And I can look back honestly now and say that many years ago, yeah, it was really hard, but you know what? God worked some necessary and good things in my life for my good and his glory as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And God will often use um, every little sadness, every little, whatever even feels like a setback in our life to show up with his grace and his that, strength a, and his perspective. That's exactly right. And that, that's what the whole, you know, third part of the book is about, is, is about the things you just mentioned, the perspective God gives through his word on, on you know, understanding something when something's painful, um, you know, the hope that we have uh, as, as Christians for that, you know, for loved ones, let's say, who believe in Christ, who die, the hope we have to, to see them again, again someday. You know, the gospel means good news. It's good news that we can be made right with God, even in our fallen, sinful world where the greatest enemy is death. Um, so, all, I mean, th- these are kind of the big issues of life. And, and God was teaching me these things through the journey with a dog. It, it's just, it, was, it was a result of Ben that so many of these things were, were impressed upon me in God's grace. You know, God's grace is often considered unmerited favor. That's, that's how it's defined. It's something that we don't deserve or cannot earn. And we need God's grace, whether in loss or in anything else. As believers, we need God's help, his unmerited favor to get through life, to do what we cannot do on our own. And so um, that really is, you know, the, the big story of the book is about God's grace in, 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 any, in any instance in life. Because again, it goes down to the relationships God puts in our life, whether it's with humans or maybe a special dog like Ben, or it's the circumstances, our experiences in life. God uses those two things. And every, each one of us has different sets of those. We have different relationships and different experiences or circumstances. But we can be absolutely sure that God takes both of those things, relationships and experiences, to use those to mold us into the character that he wants to shape us into. David Wheaton is my guest, and his book is called My Boy Ben, a story of love, loss, and grace. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, more with David. presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Welcome back to the show. David Wheaton is my guest. David's my friend, and we are uh, talking about his book called My Boy Ben, A Story of Love, Loss, and Grace. David, you even have uh, a correlation to the story of David and Bathsheba Mm. and how that helped you understand the kind of relationship that uh, a person can have with a pet. I'm curious. Yeah. uh, When I came across that that passage in scripture. It's the Old Testament passage in Second um, Samuel. This is where King David has sinned with Bathsheba, and um, he had her husband murdered, Uriah, and he goes on with his life and, and tries to get away with it. And about a year later, the, the God says, sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him about it. And 
this the illustration that God inspired Nathan to use to David to make maximal impact on David is a very interesting uh, story. He says this in Second Samuel. He said he comes to David and says, "There were two men in one city, the one rich, and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children." It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. And he goes on to say in the passage, he creates a scenario to David and the rest of the story Nathan lays out is that, well, someone, the rich man came along and took away that poor man's one little lamb and went and slaughtered it and killed it. And David was understandably just outraged. Bring me that man. He must die. And then Nathan says to him, you are that man. That's what you did to Uriah by taking his wife and having him killed. And so the impact was huge. But the analogy that Nathan used of this relationship, this tender relationship between this poor man and his one little lamb hmm. who was like a daughter to him. Wow. I mean, he could use a lot of other analogies. No kidding. But he used that one because everyone gets that kind of relationship that you can have with uh, with with a pet in your life. It's really, really touching even to think about it now. Yeah, no kidding. You know, I think Augustine talks about disordered loves where it's not that we, that we love bad things, but we can sometimes l- love good things too much. And I think that we can sometimes run the risk of, of having a, a, a pet become a little bit of a disordered love. Is that fair? Yeah, that's quite a transition from the last question, but that's true. And I, and I actually write about this in the book is that I often sometimes thought, you know, do I love Ben actually too much? I mean, <laughs> am I putting too much emphasis on a dog? And I think there is a there is a concern there that that can happen like anything in life. You can mm-hmm. love your car too much or your house too much right. or even your family too much. You know, in other words, there's a priority in life that we want God above all first and foremost in our life and then our family, and then friends, and so forth. And so I'm not trying to say at all that, you know, a dog is as important as your spouse or your child. Or I, I even say, you know, Ben was not a son, but he was kind of like a son. There was, there was there's a, a bit of that love as you would have for a child, but of course, not to the same degree. And that's up to every dog owner to make sure that's regulated in, in the right, uh, right level. Um, but the bottom line is we do, and it's it's very common. I mean, people get it when they read this book. They get it. If, they, if you've owned a dog, if you've loved a dog and lost a dog, you get it. I mean, it's not, it's not like you have to explain this to someone. People who have had a pet come into their home, and it's it's the journey of many years. They've been around. They've been part of the rhythms of your life. And all of a sudden, that's gone. And they don't live that long, unfortunately. When it's gone, you feel it. You feel the sting uh, which again is the reminder that we do live in a fallen world that nothing's going to live forever. Mm-hmm. And tell me about the the period of uh, mourning that you went through, and d- did you feel a little bit out of your mind at times, or were you just uh, doing okay, but just had periods of sadness? How did it work for you with Ben? No, it was crushing. Yeah. There's no question about it. Anyone who's loved and lost knows what that feels like. There's a there's a pain in the in the deep part pit of your stomach that doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. And you know, no matter what you do, you wake up in the morning and Ben's not next to the bed. Um, so it's it's just a harsh reality of life in this fallen world. But 
that that's where this the, the whole the book all leads to. And it's not just the last chapter. It's the whole final third of the book leads into God's purposes and in the difficult trials of our lives and the resources, the things he provides, his grace, his comfort, his perspective, the hope he gives. Um, if we receive it, he's offering it to us, but we must understand where it is and how to receive it. It's in his word, the promises in his word, promises. So yeah, it was a difficult time. Matter of fact, I don't want to give away too much of the story here, but I was actually dating my my wife at the time and it actually broke us up. Not because it we, we had a uh, you know, a unfriendly fallout at all. It just, I was in a really kind of a tough state for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just said to her, you know what, I just don't think it's fair to you. Just, I need to get past this and, and, uh, it's not fair to you to continue on while I'm in the state. And, and she took that as, well, this is probably a breakup for good. I didn't think that, but it broke us up for a couple years. And, but that's all part of the story of my boy, Ben, of God used this loss of a dog. To, to break us up. And he did work in both of our lives over those two years, work that needed to be done, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, circled back and brought us back together again to finally be married. And that, that's all part of the story of my boy, Ben, how, how a yellow lab that I had in my single years, in my late twenties and my thirties, God used to do all that. It's just, I look back on today and still think that's really amazing. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And the question that that comes up really often is, you know, do you think we'll see our pets and our dogs huh. in heaven? And and I, you cover that in the book, so I'm going to let people discover it on their own. Yeah, I think we should let people discover that in their own. I want to give that one away. No, I'm not you know, giving that one away. Yeah, Christians have a lot of different perspectives on that. And I'll just answer the, the question this way, that God is good and he's gracious and he's a loving, kind God, and we can trust him to do the right thing with regard to our pets. So that's what I'm putting my faith in, that God will do what is most good for us and most glorifying to him uh, on that particular question. And it's an interesting one indeed. Yeah. And David, I will just say this uh, for the amusement of your mom and dad. I think we should turn this into a movie, My Boy Ben, uh, starring Bill Arnold as David Wheaton. Um, and it's directed by Ron Howard. I think I've got chills. Well, you would do a great job at it. And uh, we'd love to have you do it. It is, we, we, <laughs> funny enough, we have had, uh, did have someone contact me regarding uh, that kind of endeavor uh, when, when you know, shortly after the book released. But we're, we've been doing this uh, five-year anniversary, um, you know, kind of marketing promotion of the book on mm-hmm. social media, something we didn't, we never did when it first released, but we had such great feedback on the book over the years, such encouraging feedback. It's almost like we did a little sample test in a, in a the small sample of people and we thought, you know, coming up on the five an- five year anniversary, we thought this really, um, we're going to put it out there and, and really make a push with a created a new website, myboyben.com. And um, we're really ho- making some videos and so forth. So Sweet. we're really hoping that we can get the book in more people's hands. So I really appreciate your having me on the program today, Bill. Yeah, well, I love it. Thank you, David, for uh, coming on the show. And the book is My Boy Ben, a story of love, loss, and grace. David Wheaton is the author. David, have a great uh, day, and I'll talk to you again soon. Looking forward to it, Bill. Thank you. You bet. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. 
Welcome back to the show. I am so thrilled to be inviting into the uh, program Dr. Craig Keener. He has an expertise in uh, New Testament, Acts, the historical Jesus, miracles, the gospel. I figured I've got about 22 minutes with Craig, and if I read his bio, it will take approximately 21 minutes, leaving us one minute to talk. So I better just uh, cut to the chase here and say... um, the one I'm having uh, him talk about is the IVP Background Commentary Bible, which has been updated as second edition, I think, in 2014. Craig, so nice to have you on the show. It's so great to be with you. Yeah, you know, as you, as you do your work and you sit down and you come up with this spectacular commentary, tell me about how it affects you uh, spiritually, because from an academic standpoint, you're just cranking out this, uh, this brilliant work, but how does it affect you just personally? Well, there's no spiritual life in the background by itself, but when I'm reading the Bible with a background in view as as a tool and as a resource, it's wonderful. Of course, 1 Corinthians 2 says that we understand spiritual things by spiritual means, so we still need God's Spirit working in us to to teach us, but the the background sheds light on, on so many passages, and actually I started delving into it because Years ago, when I was I was reading, well, I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so after my conversion to catch up with the kids in Sunday school, <laughs> I started reading 40 chapters of the Bible a day. And if you read 40 chapters a day, you can get through the Bible every month or through the New Testament every week. And after a while of that, I mean, the first thing it did, it, it cemented context in my mind, you know, reading reading in context, seeing how themes carry through a whole book of the Bible. But the second thing it did, it made me realize that sometimes there were things that the authors were taking for granted that their audience knew, not least, you know, Greek or Hebrew, but (laughs) things that they knew, they understood the customs, and often we don't. So if we're listening in on, on their conversation or their communication, how can we get the background? And that's what really started me on the path of digging into the background. You know, when I uh, mentioned to some of my theologian friends that I was having you on the show, they said, you can't hog Craig to yourself. <laughs> so I've got with me also in the studio, Dr. Peter Kapsner. And uh, Peter said that he'd be willing to join. He's going to be on the program a little bit later today. But uh, Peter, you must have a opening question for Craig. Oh, gosh, I got a million of them. I, I know, mean, I I, Craig, it's, it's a delight to speak with you. I've certainly have used a lot of your material in, in classes over the years. And I, I think what Thanks. I find fascinating is uh, there's a sense in which when I read what you have, it, it sort of transports me back into that first century world in which so many of these texts were written. And, and I'm curious, where do you go? Like, you obviously just can't research this stuff on the stuff on the internet and find out what was first century life like for these people. What are sort of your resources that you go to to really dig out what's happening in the scriptures behind the scenes? Sure. Initially, what I did, uh, and this was as an undergraduate, beginning to realize that I needed the background, I I read some books on background. And the first book was great, but then the second book contradicted like a quarter of what the first book said. And after a while of reading the secondary literature, I realized I needed to go back and start reading the primary literature. Um, So some of the primary literature is more relevant than others. And I was kind of I didn't know which was more relevant and which wasn't when I started, so I was just, you know, working my way around in, in all the all the primary sources. But uh, yeah, I, I go back and and read the ancient sources. Uh, in fact, um, 
just right here in front of me, I have a uh, the the new the newer translation, the updated translation of uh, the Roman um, monograph writer Sallust uh, from the Loeb Classical Library. It just I just got it from the from the new translator, so I'm looking forward to to reading that. I read the old one, but I wasn't paying enough attention the first time through, so <laughs> it'll be good. I wouldn't even know where to hunt that down. Ben. I know. No, I don't even know what the next question would yeah, be to I, ask. I, yeah, I'm, I'm stuck on that <laughs> one too. <laughs> so, Craig, when you think of the way people study Scripture, and I think I've made this mistake as recent as last week where I thought I was sort of locked and loaded on a passage. I sort of thought, okay, this is settled. And then all of a sudden I make a new discovery or um, uh, I go deeper on something and I think, have I misunderstood this for like 25 years? And then I start to panic. What else am I misunderstanding? Do you have those experiences, or, or are you immune to that? No, <laughs> I, I'm always I'm always learning new things. In terms of uh, thinking, I got it wrong for 25 years. That happens. Hopefully, it doesn't happen all the time. But, um, but yeah, I'm always learning new things, and it's it's wonderful. And in fact, of course, you know, as you read the Bible and the Spirit is speaking to you about how to apply it in your life. There, there was a time maybe uh, 25, 30 years ago when I thought, oh, okay, I got all this stuff down. I, I know all this stuff. And it was dry. And uh, I look back at that and think, I really was missing it. How could I be like that? Because <laughs> it's always fresh. It's always alive. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a passage in Scripture that you could take us to where you were feeling that and then where you came after the newer revelation? Mm, certainly. Um, well, you know, I wrote a commentary on Matthew before. Right now I'm working on Mark. And sometimes I've read Mark through the lens of Matthew because, you know, 90% of Mark's passages are in Matthew. But now as I'm reading Mark on its own terms, I mean, I've done that before, but it's just coming so alive to me, the, the irony and and the power through weakness, um, the, the, the climax and the cross, and just the message of, of how God <laughs> is not limited by human wisdom or human power. It's just, it's so beautiful. That that's not a background thing. That's just a reading, rereading Mark, just for itself, <laughs> and and you know just thinking, okay, this was probably the first gospel written, and so what was Mark communicating before we had these other layers added on? It's it's beautiful. Craig, I'd be curious too. You uh, using words like beautiful or talk about being moved by the Spirit, even as you're reading the text and. There's a classic question that came up um, when I was going through some seminary work, which was along the lines of, would you rather have an atheist who is well-studied in the biblical text try to describe for you the meaning of the text, or would you rather have a Christian who has no background in studying the text and, and relies on the Spirit in terms of getting the meaning out of the text? How, how would you answer that question? Because I think some people really <laughs> object to the idea of getting into the Bible study tools. They say, just read the scripture, then God will reveal it. But at the same time, an, an atheist clearly would be limited on some level. So, I mean, do you have a sense of how you would answer that kind of question? Yeah, it's kind of a forced choice. I mean, the ideal is to have a Christian who's studied it, right? But... <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's fair. Very fair. In, in terms of understanding it on the level of, of seeking to obey it and embrace it, believe it, obviously the Christian has the advantage in terms of 
getting, you know, understanding it in its original historical context, that's something that an atheist might do. But because the Christian has the commitment to really understand the text, I mean, we, we're going to want to understand it. We're going to want to believe it. We're going to want to obey it. So I guess there's different different ways of approaching and understanding the text, and ideally we want to get all of them. The, the gift of teaching, it's not like everybody in the body has to have the same gift, or even everybody has to have the same way of teaching. So um, I wouldn't say everybody has to have, you know, that, that level of a background. Actually, that's one reason I wrote the background commentary was because, you know, after after the first ten years of research, I'm like, you know, I needed this for my calling, but I can't expect everybody to do this before they go out and preach. So I want to put it at people's fingertips, put it all in one volume, make it available as inexpensively as possible, so you know other people don't have to spend those ten years doing the research. Uh, and actually. I've learned so much since those. That's why there's a revised edition. Um, um, maybe in 2034, if I'm still around, there'll be another revised edition. But, <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's, you know, it's it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Craig, when I was uh, the last week, one of the verses and passages that came up and we've been grappling with is Second Peter 3.9. So I have my uh, background, uh, Bible background commentary that you wrote. So I open up to Second Peter three nine, and it talks about the Old Testament emphasized that God delayed judgment to allow opportunity for the wicked to repent. Will that ever be the case where there's not wicked needing to repent? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's true. Um, uh, but although he delayed judgment, he brought judgment. So, um, like in Genesis. Six, he gave them 120 years, but then the judgment came. Because the Second Peter three nine for listeners is the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Of course, that took us into a, sort of a deeper dive of. So does God get what he wants? Will everyone come to repentance? Is how that conversation got started. I wish. Uh, <laughs> and me the, too. The, yeah, the it certainly doesn't sound like it though from the context in Second Peter three. The the promise, of course, he's talking about is the promise he mentions around verse three or four, where he talks about the promise of his coming. The mockers are saying, "Well, where is the promise of his coming? Things have been this way ever since the beginning." And and Second Peter is saying, "Well, no, it's because." God is patient towards you, giving you a chance to repent, but well, giving the mockers a chance to repent, but uh, he he wants people to come to repentance, but he goes on to say uh, how how we should live holy, uh, verse 14, and actually, even before that, um, I think around verse 10 or 12, talking about how we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which suggests to me that you know, not only do we need to be ready, but in terms of hastening it, maybe uh, preaching the gospel so others can repent. That's not background, though. That's just uh, context and other stuff in the New Testament. Yeah. Craig, what do you see the direction of the church nowadays? Oh, Lord, help us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's different different parts of the church, but 
in terms of relation to scripture, it would be great if we could see something like what you have in Second Kings uh, 22 and 23, where they found the book again and they went back to the book. I think so much in, in the U.S., this is, I mean, the, you know, worldwide, it's more like the seven churches of Asia Minor. You've got some churches facing persecution and some churches facing compromise with the same world system that's killing their brothers and sisters elsewhere. But in in the U.S., it looks to me like we are so driven by marketing. And marketing is great as long as what you're marketing is, <laughs> is truth. But we're so driven by, by marketing and consumer, I mean, it, you have to contextualize to reach the culture. But if all you're if you're driven just by consumerism, if you're just giving people what they want, you're not always going to give them what they need. And shepherds need to feed the flock with what they need. Mm-hmm. Dr. Craig Keener is my guest. He's written a number of books. The one we're chatting about right now is the one in my hand called the IVP Background. Uh, Bible background commentary of the New Testament. Spectacular. Went out and bought it myself. Take a little break. We'll be right back. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Craig Keener is my guest. He's written a number of books. He's an expert in New Testament, Acts, Historical Jesus, Miracles, the Gospel. It goes on and on. And uh, Craig, can I start by uh, throwing you a softball? <laughs> Softballs are certainly welcome. Okay. Tell me about your uh, your wife. She's African, and she got her PhD from the University of Paris. Yeah, University of Paris 7. There's there were At that time, there were different uh, parts of the University of Paris, I guess. But yes. And, yeah, and she, where did you meet? When I was doing my PhD at Duke University, she was an exchange student from France where uh, she was doing her PhD. And we met through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on the campus and became friends. And I'd, I'd share Christ with somebody on the campus and they'd say, oh, yeah, Medine Mosunga told me the same thing. So I knew she was fired up. We were both kind of shy. So it took us like over 10 years after that to get married. But... <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling it was love at first sight for you, but was it love at first sight for her? Well, we, we both, it was, we both were attracted to each other oh, good. from the beginning, but it took a while. You know, we both wanted to make sure we were following what the Lord wanted. And it was, yeah, it, it took a while. And, and in the meantime, she ended up being a refugee. She went back to Congo where she's from. And after her PhD, she was caught up in the war and, running for her life, 18 months of being a refugee. After she got out of that, and after we were able to reestablish contact, uh, we sped up a bit in our romance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was, the being apart was a bit scary at times like that. Yeah. Are you up for talking about some miracles? Sure. Yeah. And it's an open-ended question, uh, which I don't even know quite where to begin. But tell me how you've collected stories of miracles and, and how they've impacted um, your writings and teachings. Sure. I mean, I started doing it. It started as a footnote in my 4,500-page Acts commentary because, <laughs> you know, the skeptics were saying, well, this can't be historical. Look how many miracles it reports. And, of course, miracles don't happen, they said. And eyewitnesses would never report this. This has to be legend. There were some people who said that, and I'm like, 
No, it doesn't have to be legend. I know people who claim to have seen things like this. I've seen a, a few of them myself. So, uh, so I was just going to have a footnote, uh, but I, I wanted to have in the footnote, I wanted to have a book or two that would list a whole bunch of them, give some medical documentation or whatever. Initially, I didn't find those books, so the footnote kept growing and growing. And then after about 200 pages, I said, okay, this needs to be a separate book. And uh, I, you know, by that point, I'm interviewing people. Uh, I'm uh, finding more books that you know, give this account or that account. And uh, finally, I'm finding some stuff that includes medical documentation. And finally, the book comes out. It's 1,100 pages. But uh, I, I had a lot of good interviews uh, in the Philippines, uh, especially at this one seminary where there were students from a lot of different different nations, um, and and some other some other places where I was able to go. Um, some some Chinese pastors that I was able to interview. Yeah, just a lot. And and of course the African connections. When I was in uh, Congo with my wife, we were able to interview a number of people, including. Well, one of the, this wasn't by any means the most dramatic, but one woman who was talking about how her daughter had, had been not breathing for three hours, you know, as far as she could tell. And when they uh, they prayed, she went to a family friend, uh, brought the child, you know, in a different village, and he prayed. She started breathing again. The next day, she was fine. Now an adult with no brain damage, a master's degree. Um, that one was not the most dramatic that I got, but it was the one that really shifted my own thinking beyond, you know, my academic, you know, skeptical, ask every every possible question uh, to saying, well, the burden of proof in my mind has shifted a bit because this was my mother-in-law who was sharing the story and the person who was raised was my, my sister-in-law. Wow. You know, Craig, when you talk about miracles like that too, I, I think I heard somebody once say, Something along the lines of that in Western societies like Europe and the United States of America, the, the question is always along the lines of, is there a spiritual realm and, and how can I know and do these miracles happen? But in so many other parts of the world, as you just described, like Africa or places in Asia and, and South America, the question changes a little bit to be, uh, of course, there's a spiritual realm and of course these things happen. The only question is, is how do we interact with that? Uh, I don't know if you think that's a fair statement or if you have a maybe an exp explanation for why the West tends to be more skeptical of these things where other parts of the world, it, it seems sort of just common weekly life. Yeah. Uh, often uh, what I found like in India and Indonesia and elsewhere, the, the question is, uh, how do you discern which supernatural things are from God, <laughs> which mm. things are from somewhere else? But yeah, in, in the in the West, we've been really impacted by what we, we've reacted in the Enlightenment. We were reacting against a lot of superstition and the reaction was appropriate to that to that degree. But unfortunately, I think in overreacting, we uh, we threw out the baby with the bathwater and uh, the influence of David Hume has been felt very strongly where Hume uh, said, you know, there's no credible eyewitnesses for miracles. Uh, therefore, you know, anybody who claims to have seen a miracle is not credible. So, you know, it's a circular argument. But um, I don't think Hume himself would dare claim that today because we've just got so much. I mean, we've got so many eyewitness claims from so many people who are credible witnesses. So you can 
you can say, okay, we've got to come up with some other explanation for this, but you can't get away with saying there's no credible eyewitnesses, which was his argument that, that kind of was taken up in Western thought to where we say, well, the burden of proof is so high that unless I see somebody, you know, God right in the sky, in my language, I am God, I'm not going to believe it. Um, that's even higher bar than, than Hume would have required. I know, Craig, you recently wrote a book on Galatians. Did that come out last year? Yes. Actually, there were. there's a small one I wrote for Cambridge and a larger one for Baker Academic. Yeah. Uh, the, the larger one came out last year and the other one came out the year before. Well, I know, the larger one came out, uh, yeah, the larger one came out this year, the smaller one came out last year. Yeah, I would, I would love for the listeners to just be able to, uh, you know, hear your perspective on maybe a well-known verse from Galatians, like Galatians 2.20 or uh, 5, 22 or uh, 23. I know that they would love to hear how your mind thinks on these. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's so much there. No, th this isn't, well, the ways I would think about those would probably be less background than context. But let me, let me give something from context. Okay. In 5.16, Paul talks about walking by the Spirit, you know, and he's been, he's been talking about the law, and of course in the Old Testament it often speaks of walking in God's commandments, walking in His testimonies, but he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you'll by no means at all fulfill the lust of the flesh, and then he gives a contrast how it's either one or the other, and then in verse 18, continuing this image of walking, um, like the Israelites in the, in the wilderness were being led by, by God, um, if we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. Uh, and of course, he's going to go on from the context to show uh, we're not under the law because actually the law of the Spirit of life has been written in our hearts. We have the law of Christ. And so um, in verse 25, he says, put your, well, it could be translated different ways, but in light of how Paul uses the language elsewhere, uh, look where the footsteps of the Spirit are and put your feet in those footsteps. So continuing this image of walking. And so in verses 22 and 23, well, actually, often in the ancient world, they would have uh, lists of vices and lists of virtues. Uh, and sometimes they'd, they'd have them side by side. Well, Paul does that here. He talks about, here's the best the flesh can do. He's been critiquing those who, you know, think that they can attain righteousness by means of their own effort instead of God's gift. And so he says, here's the best the flesh can do. And he gives a list of vices in verses 19 through 21. And, and then he goes on, and these are just examples. He says, such are these. But in verses 22 and 23, he says, now, this is the fruit of the Spirit. And of course, fruit is something that, you know, you can cultivate it, but <laughs> it, it grows because of, of what it's made out of, you know. So the Spirit has come to dwell within us, and Christ living in us, 2.20, the Spirit dwelling within us brings forth this fruit. And the first fruit that he mentions is love, which in the context, you go back, you know, 5.14, uh, it's love that fulfills the law. And and then in the, and, and of course, he goes on and contrasts that with the flesh. And then, so because the Spirit lives in us, um, we, we bear this this fruit, which is the, it's, it's not in the sense of omniscience or omnipotence or anything. I mean, God is God, we are finite, but in the sense of his character, his moral character, because God's own spirit lives in us, it brings forth 
to use Paul's language elsewhere, we're being conformed more to the image of Christ. And even he goes on into chapter 6 and talks about uh, you who are spiritual. In other words, you who have the Spirit. Uh, do If you're correcting a, a fellow believer, do it in the spirit of gentleness. Well, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and then when he talks about sowing to the Spirit uh, and, and reaping eternal life, well, the sowing to the Spirit, what happens when you sow to the Spirit? You bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. So the agricultural image is, is carried on in the context. So it's very, uh, very deeply interwoven in the context of Galatians. Beautifully stated. Thank you uh, for that. This is um, uh, really nice to meet you and nice to have you on the show. And I just will say that every time I reach for this uh, Bible background commentary, which I will do often, I will personally uh, just pray for you and your family. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. It's so great. It's really been a delight having you on the show, Craig, and I certainly hope I can get you back on. Oh, it it, uh, it would be my, my privilege. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Yeah. Dr. Craig Keener has been my guest. The book we've been chatting about is called the IVP Bible Background Commentary. Okay. Well, that was a great show. That was my opinion. I hope it was yours as well. I want to say thanks to everyone who uh, came on and made this an amazing couple of hours. That wraps up our show for the day. I hope you have a wonderful night as you are preparing to be with your family and friends. I'm so grateful. My heart is so full. Thank you so much for uh, supporting Faith Radio and listening to the show and frankly caring about us. It just means the world. Very grateful for you. God bless and I love you. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.